Welcome to the realm of magic and mystery, classic horror and sci-fi. You are now entering the House of the Unusual podcast with your hosts, Eddie and Joe. Welcome all you cool ghouls and friendly fiends. It's the House of the Unusual podcast. I'm your host, Joe Pavlansky, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Unfortunately, I cannot be with the group today. I'm going to turn it over to my good buddy, Eddie Guevara, for the introductions and the setup for what's going to turn out to be a great topic of discussion today. So, Eddie, take it away. Okay, everybody. Yes, we have a great lineup today. We have Chuck and Sherry, as always, our buddies, and we have a special guest. The guy who not only all of us that grew up in our time in the 70s remember, anybody who picked up a Johnson Smith catalog, well, Craig Taubeck was behind it. And he's in our show today. Tell us a little bit about yourself, buddy. And you have a story to tell about the famous Johnson Smith company. Mike, before I tell you, Craig, uh, Mike, you, how are you, buddy? Oh, doing great. Doing great. Glad to be with you guys today. I'm very excited because yesterday was the actual official release of my Ghost of Transfer book. Now it's yeah. actually, a lot of people received it yesterday who pre-ordered. I've been getting a lot of cool messages and reviews. But yeah, so really exciting week. And I'm signing, a, doing a book signing at Barnes & Noble here in Rancho Cucamonga, California this Friday night. So it's a cool week. Awesome. I would ask you been good for the famous Francis Smith catalog. Oh, you're talking about the Edgar Bergen story. Is that right, Eddie? That is correct. Everybody knows Edgar Bergen. Been around yeah. a long time. Well, go ahead. Tell yeah, story. he was a, a ventriloquist. He actually was uh, Candace Bergen's father. You know, man, most people know of Candace Bergen. But yes. uh, Edgar um, became the highest paid entertainer of the 40s because of his radio show uh, that was basically headlined by his uh, ventriloquist figure or dummy as they are called McCarthy. What happened was back when he was in high school probably uh, the the late teens 1916, 17 somewhere in there uh, the story Edgar uh, sent an order to Johnson Smith for a, a book uh, that was published by Johnson Smith about electricity or something mm-hmm. mechanical I'm not exactly sure what he ordered, but we made a mistake. Johnson Smith made a mistake and sent him a, a book on how to be a ventriloquist. Oh, my. <laughs> so because of a mis- Johnson Smith mistake, he became the highest paid entertainer of the, of the 40s on radio. That was, you know, before television, obviously. Wow. And... Um, Charlie McCarthy uh, was the feature entertainer on the so-called Chase and Sanborn uh, radio show, which got huge listening listeners, uh, was the number one uh, radio show of the day for many years in the 40s. Um, Charlie was kind of a smart aleck, and he could get away with things. He could say things on the radio that a person couldn't, you know, the, the, censors, the censors wouldn't, uh, would, wouldn't stop him because he was a, a dummy. So, uh, it made, uh, Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen very, very famous and very highly paid. Wow. That's amazing. It's, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is, um, and, and Mike, um, if you're aware, uh, Craig Taubeck, 
I, th- I believe I mentioned uh, he's uh, the guy behind Johnson Smith from uh, about 40 years, correct? Um, and um, so all of us basically that grew up looking at Johnson Smith catalog, well, Craig was behind it. And, and one of the wow. things, Craig, is that Craig uh, is one of the creators of the Seven Foot Ghost. Um, wow. So if you ever wanted one as a kid and you felt the balloon they took you in, there's the man right now. You can ask any questions you want, buddy. Go ahead. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Craig, I came I came on board uh, Johnson Smith in 1970. 1970. At, at that wow. time, Johnson um, Smith had sort of wound down. Um, uh, wasn't the the uh, current owner who was uh, the son of the founder, uh, Alfred Johnson Smith's son, was named Paul Smith. And by 1970 or so, uh, he was about 55 years old and kind of, kind of wanted to um, uh, uh, wind down the business. Uh, hired a manager uh, to run it, in, 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 although in a, uh, a much um, reduced form uh, than it had had been the last few years of Paul Smith running it. But this manager actually wanted to make it happen again and eventually became the owner and uh, hired me to help with the marketing in 1970. Uh, at that time, comic books were still quite popular. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, um, comic books had uh, the various titles uh, had a circulation of over 100 million a month. Wow. Um, and well, yeah, so you could buy them at every seven 11 in those days, you know, you go on every corner and there was a, a stack of comics. It's, it's not, sadly, it's not that way anymore. And no. comics are, yeah, comics cost more than a, a good steak dinner now, but, <laughs> but, but, it, but, but in those days, yeah, you could just go in. And of course, even the, the tie-ins with advertising for comic books, like a seven 11 with Slurpees and all this, uh, it was, there was, you know, you could get plant, you know, paper airplanes. So it was an amazing time. Uh, and so, yeah, those ads would pop out at us and we would uh, we would see those ads. I have a question for you, uh, Craig. Yeah. Um, so before you got involved with the actual company, when you were younger, uh, did you read comics and did you ever purchase any of the items or want to purchase any of the items when you were a younger man? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, yeah, when I was a kid in the 50s, uh, late 50s, uh, I, I, I would go to the local drugstore, which had a, a counter. Craig. Hello. Hello. Uh, as you guys know, uh, we're, uh, actually in different States right now. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, Craig might go in and out. Uh, Craig, if, uh, anytime again, if, if right now we're not hearing you, if you can hear us, uh, just log out, come back in again. We'll continue the story there. It's no problem. But, you know, the thing was with the comic books, Eddie, too, in the 70s, you know, it, it was a good era for comic books. Um, you had so many of the classic artists still doing comics. And then you had the newer artists coming into the comic book industry. Right. And so it was kind of a neat time. Yeah. Actually, you know, not only that, one of the things about the 70s, that you could go anywhere. Like you said, you can go to drugstores. Yeah, anywhere, and they had a rack, and they sold comics. Oh man, it was great. You know what? We had we had a few little mom and pop stores around where I lived, and they were great, man. They had a 
they had a whole section of comics and uh, it was really cool. I think they were a dime back in the I late sixties. So, yeah. A dime, maybe twelve cents. Wow. Yeah, the sixties yeah, the sixties ones were more twelve cent ones. And then when we got into the seventies, they got up to the more twenty five, thirty five cent zone. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Like they like they had a thing on the front cover, Michael. It said still only twenty five cent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Hold on, Harvey. Uh, well, Craig, you're back. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, so to answer your question, um, yes, I did uh, buy comics in the late 50s uh, with my cherry Coke at the local drugstore. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and uh, uh, but you know what? I, I, I didn't really catch on to the Johnson Smith ads. Uh, I guess there was something wrong with me. Uh. <laughs> Because what I what I've learned what I've learned uh, what I learned at working with uh, the comic book people uh, and our customers in the seventies is that so many uh, of of uh, our customers were really curious kids, very curious about what was going on in the world, and um, would uh, wind up buying something like the seven foot flying ghost. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I bought I, what I liked. I, uh, of course, I, I like the Hypno Disc, too, was a big one that I like. But um, but the, the, the cool one was the martial arts. You could learn martial arts. And and you guys would send out, I think, a poster that had the, the pressure points you could you know practice with. And uh, I think I don't know if it was advertised as a practice dummy or just but it was a, it was a poster literally that you could hang on your wall and practice with. Right. You know, I'm the one I, I, on the on the catalog. I'm the one who came up with the uh, change of names. Uh, I labeled it the catalog "Things You Never Knew Existed." Oh yeah, and, oh. Other, and other items you can't possibly live without. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there was nothing in the catalog that you couldn't live without, but <laughs> um, but uh, I think things you never knew existed attracted a lot of attention. Yes. Well, uh, Craig, aren't you also the one that's, uh, there was a shoot-off of the company called the Lighter Side? Wasn't, weren't you involved be, behind that company? Yeah, well, the Lighter Side was a catalog we created uh, in about 1980. And uh, what we were, our intention was, was to do sort of a, a, a Johnson Smith-type catalog, but for adults, not for kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, and of course, by that time in the '80s, comic books were becoming a, a, a thing of the past, as you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, so we, uh, I was my my own. The owner asked me, "What can we do that would attract adults?" So I was looking for a niche catalog that just really wasn't out there, and I, I came up with uh, what we wound up calling the lighter side. In other words, fun surprises uh things that you never knew existed but by a different name the lighter side hmm how many catalogs did the johnson myth eventually shoot out because i remember there were like betty yeah well in the um in the 80s we were doing about 40 million catalogs a year oh wow wow that's crazy I, I have a question. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, uh, in talking to you, because I've always wondered about this, uh, did you sell more product from DC Comics or Marvel Comics? Good question. Uh, as you know, uh, the first comic book ever published was DC 
Superman. Right. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that was 1938, yeah. uh, way before my time. But um, in, in that particular issue, which, by the way, if you had a copy of today, would be worth a million dollars. Wow. Um, uh, literally a million dollars or more. Uh, and uh, in that particular first comic, uh, we had two ads in it, two full page ads. Um, and uh, so that was the beginning of our comic books from 1938 on through into uh, almost uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. But which well, company, which company did oh, I would say to answer your question then? Um, I, I would say probably uh, DC Comics was maybe uh, the, the most pro- productive for us. However, I do think I remember um, a Marvel comic, might have been a Marvel comic, and I used to negotiate the cost of uh, a full-page ad uh, with the various comic book uh, publishers. Oh. And, and, and I, ca- I think I remember one Marvel comic that we uh, paid $4,000 for. And I mean, that was a lot of money in uh, the early 70s. Sure. And, and uh, however, it, it returned, as I recall, over $40,000 oh, worth of sales, all of those things that were 99 cents, a dollar and a quarter. Yeah, and you know, for... For for kids like me, it was seeing those ads always was just so so exciting. You know, uh, one thing I want to bring into what uh, Craig was saying, and it was phenomenal because see, uh, there's two stories that were very interesting, especially this with Craig. I contacted Craig at in the beginning of 1984, I think it was, and I uh, I had I had talked to another person, and and I I forgot what exactly he was, but his name was Dominic. And I mentioned that I was interested in the ghost. I was trying to see if the Joseph Smith company could tell me how to make the ghost or if they still had it. Now, it had been a couple of years at this time that they had stopped producing the ghost. And I remember Craig, Craig got on the phone and it was very, that was the first time I ever uh, talked with Craig. And he was, it was, it was kind of funny, Craig, because you were really, really a nice customer service person or whatever it was. So I could say, uh, a real, and you came on and, and you actually said, wait a minute. And you went on to tell me where to buy the parts, how to make the ghost. And you also went on to tell me, if you get it made, let me know. I'll try to put it in the ne- you know, the future Johnson Smith catalog. I was so excited. I got all the information only to find out that all that information was no longer prevalent. Uh, the companies were not really selling the ghost anymore. I mean, the parts for it. And I had to at that time improvise try to figure out how to come up with one um then the other thing i wanted to add to craig's story is it's in 1986 i think it was 85 86 i started looking up you know after i had talked to craig and stuff and you know i was a young kid so of course then i got to pay much attention to me um i remember craig i tried to get your attention when i sent you a bottle for christmas uh the following i think that following christmas just to, to you know to say hey here's a gift i send you and again, you know, I, I, I didn't really get much out with Craig. And then what happened is uh, Lou Weiss, uh, I tracked Lou Weiss. Lou Weiss was the owner 
of another uh, mail order company, very famous in the 70s, which was called the Fun Factory. And that was, it touched the core between Craig and me because apparently uh, Lou, while Lou was running the Fun Factory, he had tried to reach out one time to Craig to hire him and bring him over to New Jersey to work for the Fun Factory. So that kind of broke the, the, the cord there between me and, you know, and Craig started talking a little more with me. And then later on, I actually, I, I wanted to meet him so bad. I drove 359 miles <laughs> to have lunch with him. Remember that? Wow. <laughs> but the, the other part of the story that I wanted to add to this is in 198, um, you know, somehow I, I had reached out to Lou Weiss on a, on a Sunday morning in his house. Uh, 10, 11 years after the Fun Factory had gone out of business. And at first, he he didn't want to tell me who he was, but he was like, who the heck is calling me looking for the Fun Factory 10 years after it's out of business and in my house? So, um, well, whatever the reason, he decided to go in with me and we partnered and we opened the Fun Factory again in 1993. Uh, we ran our full page ad and it's true, Craig, it, it, that was actually... Uh, we paid a little bit more. We paid 5000 for the one-month ad in DC Comics. And that went in through, uh, it was, I think, the December. It was for the February issue, January issue, that went to sell December of 92. So it has a lot of, but all the DC Comics had the fun factory. And I made sure that the one item that was sold there was the seven-foot ghost. Hmm. And the thing that was kind of funny after this, and, and I'm just adding to this story here from Craig, is uh, Craig, I don't know if you recall when I first went to meet you. Well, when we first got my, I still have the original fax you faxed me with the copy of the front of the instructions for the original ghost. And you were gonna send me the back part of it, but I don't know exactly what happened. I think you got tied up and I never got the second part from you. But um, when I did tell you, hey, um, you still have the instructions. <clears throat> you uh, you went right before we went to lunch, if you remember, and you were looking for them where you broke your pants, I think it was, in the warehouse. Yeah. Of yeah. <laughs> and I didn't get them, but I was able to, at a crazy price, I, I actually had one came up in, in an original Johnson Smith of about 10. It was prior to 20, I think it was 2009, because Mail Order Mysteries by Kirk Damaris came out the year later. And, and Kirk and me actually got into a battle over the ghost, which I didn't even know I was fighting him on eBay. And I wound up paying $893 for the balloon and the original instructions. Oh, later on, uh, some guy in some, this was crazy, okay, two years later, some guy bought an empty envelope and the instructions and the control line. It didn't have the balloon or the sheet. And he got it in some Las Vegas... Uh, I forget strip. It was like a, one of those antique shops, and he. I gave him a seven, a six foot Dracula for free, in exchange for that, and that's how I was able to obtain the two envelopes for the original ghost. Wow! But other than that, I do have the original Honor House. I still have the original that I had from 1973 when I purchased uh, Milton Company. But anyway, I, Craig, I thought I I mentioned that my company, the I mean, me and Lou Weiss, the Fun Factory was the last company to ever run an ad in, in, in the comic books. Uh, and that was either DC or Marvel. Uh, prior to me running that 93 ad, I know Johnson Smith had ran uh, full page back ads in, in uh, Harvey Comics. When Harvey Comics was running a special, 
I think they charged like $750 for three months, which was yeah. crazy. And uh, if you remember, Craig, that was the, and then you guys became very popular with the dawn of wrestling magazines when wrestling was very popular in the 80s. But then in 89, mm -hmm. after all that was said, the last ad that ever ran was the Fun Factory. And um, Bernie Slotnick told me that because he goes, I haven't had, now Bernie Slotnick was in charge of, of DC Comics. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he was in charge of DC Comics advertising for like 40 years. And also uh, he's the, the uh, uncle for the lady who owns Harvey Publications. Not Harvey, I'm sorry, Archie Comics. Or the Archie Comic owner, that's his niece, I believe, according to Bernie. Yeah, I remember talking to Bernie and also uh, the woman who uh, handled Archie, uh, Archie, but I don't remember her name off the top of my head. But um, yeah, uh -huh. those, were, those, were, those were fun years. Well, the, the girl from Archie Comics, Denise, is actually... Um, she used to be in the Howard Stern show and used to call us Susan Berserkowitz. <laughs> but it was Susan Perky, I believe. That's the niece, I believe, of Harvey Publications. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you know what really what really killed the comics, I think, were the uh, uh, the uh, computer games or, or or you know the what, what the kids were doing were spending their money on playstation or whatever that yeah, the yeah. first one was yeah that would have been in like the early 80s with atari and all that stuff uh atari nintendo yeah right after that after that they didn't really have they you know the comics basically disappeared from 100 million a month to nothing yeah that's great You're right you know uh yeah. Craig, i'm glad you brought that up because i i tell a lot of people that i remember between 82 or 83 to about 87 or so there were no comic books. You couldn't find right. them. You're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, it was a transition, you know, a lot because uh, as I was uh, talking about earlier too, the pricing went up so high that a kid just couldn't go buy one. And then, you know, they, they had to choose, okay, am I going to spend this much money, a dollar, uh, $2, whatever. And now comic books, of course, are, you know, you can buy them for up to, you know, six, five, six dollars. It's, it became a pricing issue also. And also, during that era from the late 70s to the, in that spot there, some of the, the Marvel comics in particular weren't using their top A artists anymore. They were using people that were lesser artists, and the, the art and the comics were not, as, were not grabbing kids as much as they had no. in their imaginations. Um, you know, great artists like um, Jack Kirby, Gil Kane, um, all of those had sort of been pushed aside to a great extent and they were just using, you know, quick art and a lot of them were copying the art that had been done previously. So what I'm saying is that for kids, the comic books, um, it, well, cars were not great in the seventies either. That's when we had a lot of the lemons, you know, the Chevy, everything in the seventies sort of went on the cheap more. And, and so I think kids did move on to some more exciting things for them uh, to some extent. Plus, the books were not readily available at 7-Elevens anymore. They, they stopped, you know, carrying them. And so you had to go to a specialty store or subscribe. And kids aren't going to subscribe. They can't afford to do a subscription generally. So they couldn't find the product. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I think it adds to a lot. And, and Craig, would, you know, being a lot older than us, probably remember, the 70s was also the time, especially with President Jimmy Carter on board, uh, which we were kind of going through a depression. And I think that's why a lot of the things were made cheaper and stuff. I didn't even realize when I was a young kid under Mayor Koch, we had a, there was a New York City almost went bankrupt 
I mean, as a kid, you don't see that because you we only saw. So our avenue was especially. I didn't buy comics to read the comics. I I only read Harvey, uh, Little Casper, Richie Rich, um, Spooky. I only bought them because I had ads in them, and I would buy anything. And I would look through the comic if it had an ad. I would buy it. Otherwise, I didn't. I, 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 which is so funny but I think what happened with comic books is during the 70s 80s when the comic books disappeared uh, the people that loved mail order people that loved ordering the novelty the young kids they started turning only to Boys Life magazine which is the only one that had any ads in them yeah. at that time Boys Life used to have like at least 7 or 8 pages filled with ads and yes Johnson Smith continued there all the other companies, Fun Factory. There was another company in New Jersey called the Fun House, which was Jack Abuff was the owner. Then the Fun House was also um, people, so they can recognize which it was. They had the ad that said one million dollars in free gold or banknotes, and it had a money bag. That's the famous Fun House. But one thing I was going to say during that is when the magazines came out for wrestling, and wrestling became very popular under Vince McMahon. And it became, you know, WWF, whatever. It was so popular that it allowed companies to start advertising in them. And then there was an influx. Then you had Brands, Brass Fun Shop and a few others that appeared, Lakeside Products. And they all sold the same thing as Johnson Smith. And Johnson Smith kept running ads there. And also the Charles Atlas Company uh, filled the, 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 the gap that was missing when no comic books were sold anymore. And I think what happened is, and I thought this until about two or three weeks ago when I actually, I was doing research on this, Craig, and I think this, you will find this interesting, all of you, Mike and, and you know, and Chuck and Cherry, is that I realized, and I always, I was always told by a lot of people throughout my, and, and I believe, Craig, you actually mentioned this one time where you said that the people in the United States or the kids in the United States always used to say one thing, and that was, we have the cool stuff and the people in Europe would say like England, oh, I wish we lived there because we, we had the comics, but we couldn't order the stuff. And I didn't realize that in Europe, okay, in Europe, they didn't have the seven foot ghost. They didn't have the seven foot skeleton and Frankenstein, but they had just regular magic tricks and jokes. And in fact, it was so big that it blew my mind three or four weeks ago that I started looking through how many companies are in England that sell magic tricks and stuff. And the other thing that blew me away is there's a total, I counted 47 companies on eBay that are selling hundreds of items per week of novelties, which I said to myself, wow, that's crazy. And I think what's happened is that there's always been kids that love this stuff, but I think the avenues of between comic books and stuff became more rare. So therefore, it couldn't reach the mass population. But one thing I want to tell you is I remember Lou said to me two things when we were doing the Fun Factory. He said, I love it when in January it snows because we used to get flooded with orders for whatever reason. And also the people from California, for some reason, were the biggest buyers for some bizarre reason. It, and this is bizarre because I said to him, I don't get it. It snows in the East Coast <laughs> and the West Coast orders. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, the reason, the reason, Eddie... That January was so good for Johnson Smith and the Funhouse. Two. Re- Hello, Craig. We lost the two reasons. 
The poor guy's having a little bit of a tough time. He's out in, uh, I believe, in uh, Michigan. Uh, do me a favor, Craig. If you can, again, sign on and sign back in because we still have half an hour. We like to hear the two reasons. Yeah. That's an important thing. Wow. Uh, Craig, if you, like I said, sign on. Sign. But anyway, what I was going to mention, uh, well, I, I was going to listen to Craig's two reasons because it's phenomenal. But one thing I'm going to tell you, everybody that's listening and stuff is that the the Fun Factory and it's specifically everything that came with it, the, you know, the Fun House, there was LB was another company that was out of Texas and, and so forth. And yes, January, February, March, and April were always the best month of mail order. And it, it, the difference as compared to the internet was that in the day you would run an ad, you had to wait about three months for the ad to come out before you got any orders. And uh, Craig, are you back? Yeah. I'm, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Give us the two reasons. I'm good. Good to you. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I, what I was saying is that uh, January was our busy season with the Johnson Smith type business um because the kids got their christmas money and then in january the weather was so bad they were able to uh, spend money by staying indoors and reading comic books (laughs) that's true that (laughs) i i you know what i i I didn't think about that you just brought that up to me but you know one one specific thing craig excuse me guys uh, I guess the Florida weather's uh, getting me here a little bit with allergies. Um, one specific thing that was very in- interesting, and in, in, you know, when I was with Lou Weiss, is that Lou Weiss had an old phone book, and in there he had every every single uh, cop, you know, phone number of every mail order company, and he include. And this was kind of funny because <clears throat> I started searching, obviously, for the. Um, Excuse me, my gosh. I started searching for the uh, melting company because everybody knew I was in back of those monster robot plants. And at that time, I took a ride over to Chicago, um, which came up to a dead end. I mean, I did get information that and found out that 33 Wabash Avenue and 55 East Washington Street is the same address for the melting company and guarantee company that he used. But it was just different sides of the building. And the guy actually wound up getting a P.O. box I think it was on the 17th floor. The guy, the janitor from the building had mentioned, gave me the phone number of the widow of the guy that owned the shop. I contacted her to see if she knew who the melting guy was. Didn't work out. She said that uh, she remembers the change in the coins, but uh, (laughs) she couldn't remember much. But you know what's funny about this, though? Uh, I went down to Florida, and in Florida, I tracked down the melting company in 1976, it, they moved down, but I went to Florida like in, I don't know, I guess 87, 88. And I got there. There was a girl who had been in the post office for like 30 some years. Her name was Elizabeth that I actually it was kind of funny because I actually kept bothering her for the next 20 years until she retired. <laughs> and he goes to me, you know, Eddie, you're lucky that I keep because at first she thinks I'm crazy searching for a company that's been out of business for 20 years. So then she uh, started looking for, um, the, the list she had, she goes, you're lucky I don't throw things out. And the only thing that was missing on that list was the name of P.O. Box D&E. She had every other one. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so then I started going to about three or four local banks trying to see. Because remember, this is the 80s, so we don't have no internet. And most people and banks kept you know records for whoever was there for years. And one of the banks 
I think it was, believe it or not, Bank of America, which I, I know Bank of America. I don't know if it was the same Bank of America, but they told me in downtown Miami that the guy had a P.O. box in Upper Collins Avenue, which I went over there. Uh, I spoke with the guy, and the guy sat up there. I think the name was Fields. That's all I got there. So then one day I'm sitting up in, in, in New Jersey, and I'm sitting with Dave Harvestat from SS Adams. We're in the car together, and we're trying to do this soul searching. And, and all of a sudden, we, he's helping me to call up all these people in Florida named Melton, or with the last name Melton on the phone. And lo and behold, we find in Lou Weiss's phone book the Melton Company's phone number. Wow. If I would have only known 12 years prior to that, 15 years before, that I had a phone number in my hand, that blew my mind. And, and I, you know, sometimes you'll have it and it says that, you know, you don't have to go far. It's kind of like God says, you don't have to go far to find them. He's yeah. saying, yeah. The same thing happened. I had the phone number and what happened? I called, phone number's out of the list. So that's, so I started tracking. But anyway, it's been a um, an interesting uh, battle. And then the final battle was that I came across was that I wrote to a guy named Jay Marr, or Jay Marr was the company that actually made the plans before the Melton Company sold it. And what happened is Jay Marr, I contacted his son, who called me up on a, and this again, on a Sunday for some reason. Mm. He was so scared when I sent him a $20 bill in the mail <laughs> for him to send me the plans. I don't know what he thought I was, whatever he goes. I'm just going to tell you, my father died 20 some years ago. I'm sorry, and he sent me some um, supposedly model airplanes his father did. And I'm like, where's the rotor plans, man? <laughs> and, uh, but he thought it was his uncle, so he sent me the copy of the ad, and he says, yeah, you can still buy him from me. And then that's why I sent him the $20. I was responding to the ad he had sent me. Well, anyway, um, I did try to reach to him last year again, and I actually got no, no response. I don't even think the guy's in the P.O. box anymore. I mean, there's always hope that somebody out there might have the plans for me because that's the only thing Definitely. I haven't been able to find. And Craig knows this because, I mean, Craig, um, you know, and the thing that was very popular in the 70s, Craig, Johnson Smith in 1970, their, 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 I mean, their catalog that had the Disney, uh, you know, the castle they have in Walt Disney? Yeah, right. The cover. I think it was, I forgot what number, that, that catalog and another catalog in 1970, had the seven-foot Frankenstein poster and skeleton on the cover, which I had reached to you because I was asking you if you knew where you guys got it from, like who made it for you. And I remember you telling me, and you were trying and trying to go, Eddie, I don't remember where we got it from. And, of course, it didn't really matter because the Frankenstein, you know, I had the original, so I knew I could always make it. But you always have to hope that the original people that made it might still have the, the plates to make them, whatever. So what happened... And, and, and you remember, Honor House took the ad right out, word for word, plagiarized the Johnson Smith catalog that same year and added the coupon that is shaped like a, um, it's shaped like, a, what do you call this, like a, a coffin and ran for the next 10 years. Do you remember that, Craig? Yeah, I do remember that. I, and I remember probably Honor House probably copied some of my copy. <laughs> oh no no they copied the whole thing who did you did you write the ad copy in the in the comic books was yeah well, i i uh i wrote it all yes uh -huh. wait a second wait, wait wait craig i'm gonna bring something to your attention right now 
You wrote the seven. See, this is something that I actually didn't ever even bother asking you. Um, I don't know. Somebody might be moving the mic around. We're getting a lot of shuffle in the background. I don't know if any of you guys, but anyway, what I was saying is uh, there is, so you wrote the, just imagine your friend shocked if they walk into your room. No, that's not my line. I guess uh, um, maybe it's, it's possible that it was Paul Smith, but I don't remember. Okay, no, no, that, that's why, because when you said, that's why I was saying, because when uh, the seven-foot Frankenstein next to the skeleton, okay, that says, seven-foot Frankenstein says, just imagine your friend shocked when they walk into your room and see, so that wasn't you, correct? No, no. Okay, okay, that's what I, I just said, wow, I just learned something new today. Because yeah. the thing well, I'll give you another great line that I didn't write, but I think... Uh, either Paul Smith or his father, Alfred Johnson Smith wrote was about the whoopee cushion, uh, which we introduced into America in the twenties. Um, but uh, I think uh, Alfred Johnson Smith wrote um, this line gives forth noises better imagined than described. <laughs> yeah. That you know, was- because in those days, uh, Alfred Johnson Smith considered himself a writer and, 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 and if you look at the old catalogs, I mean, he would write an entire page on a 10 cent item. Uh, but um, but uh, I don't think he wanted to use the word fart. <laughs> well, um, that is correct. Well, what I wanted to mention is in the write up of the seven foot Frankenstein skeleton, when they says as awful as your sinister, they wrote A.W. F-U-L. They forgot the E, so they put awful. Uh, <laughs> and that misspelling stayed there for the last... It, it's up to this day. You can't write it without that misspelling. It's part of history, you know? Um, yeah. uh, why don't you tell us all, because I'm sure we'll, a lot of us, I don't know if we heard it before. I mean, I have, but I'm, these people here would like to hear, and, and the listeners. What made the Johnson Smith catalog, 1929, the most famous of all? You have about... We still got 20 minutes left. You got a few minutes. Go ahead. Give us a little rundown of to why the night. In fact, it was so famous that Johnson Smith actually duplicated and sold it as a duplicate during the 70s. Uh, yeah, which, by the way, didn't didn't do that well as a reprint. But the 1929 catalog was over 700 pages. And uh, <clears throat> what happened was um, at that time, uh, the company was in Detroit uh printed that cat published that catalog and um uh mailed it out and of course we're talking 1929 and just about the depression time the, the the catalogs went out in the mail to the mailing list uh but the orders didn't come in uh because people there was a depression on people couldn't spend money and as as a result uh, Mr. Smith, uh, Alfred Johnson Smith, was unable to pay the printer of the catalog. Uh, and, and in fact, he declared he had to declare bankruptcy at that time. Um, the, uh, but he promised the printer uh, that he would pay them not 10 percent, which, of course, you're allowed to do on, on, under bankruptcy law, but he would pay them in full. Uh, they said, well, that's great. Um, we, we would like you to uh, move your company to Racine, Wisconsin, where they were located, uh, 
and uh, we'd like uh, to uh, have one of our people work with you while you run your business and pay us back uh, as, as, as you can. So Johnson Smith moved to uh, Racine, Wisconsin, and took a couple, three, four years. I don't know what it was exactly. Uh, and eventually, Mr. Smith paid the, the printer in full, uh, not 10%, but in full. Uh, and when he did that, he moved back to Detroit, where, where, where he wanted, really wanted to be. Um, and I remember when I came on board in 1970, there were uh, vendors, people from whom Johnson Smith had been buying for decades, uh, who commented to me how happy they were with Johnson Smith because he had paid them in full as well. Because, you know, all the stuff that he bought, um, he couldn't pay for in, in 1930, 31, 32. But eventually, as the 30s went on and his business grew again, uh, he paid everybody back. That's fantastic. That's, right That's really amazing. Hey, Craig, I had a quick question for you. Uh, when you came to Johnson Smith in 1970, what did the place look like inside? I mean, I mean was it a like a <laughs> type of a, a warehouse with items everywhere, or was it a small type of place? I mean, what what did it look like inside? I'm sure I'm sure that all the listeners would like to know this as you know what as as well as well. At, the, at that point in time, uh, it had wound down to just be maybe a four or five hundred thousand dollars a year business. Mm-hmm. So it it, uh, it wound up, but how did what did it look like inside? Yeah, I was just curious. I mean, did it have a bunch of products, you know, you know, in in different places that they had to ship things out? I mean, was it a massive like an inventory type of thing? Or I think Craig got disconnected again. Yeah, I, I did too. The poor guy, man, he's having a tough time over there, um, and and he's the star of the show. Him and Mike. <laughs> well, are you I, I find to, this fascinating. Are you I, able to hear me? Yeah, now yeah, there you right. go. We got you. Okay. Well, what we actually. Uh, it was back in Detroit then in 1970 uh, in a uh, former post office building, a small like, you know, local post office building, two floors okay. um, that for some reason the uh, post office had decided was too small for them. They moved to a larger uh, facility and Paul Smith uh, bought that building, uh, that old post office building. And that's where it was. It had been for a few years. Um, <laughs> subsequently, you know, we grew the business and we needed a bigger facility and, uh, we moved from the Detroit, uh, post office, old post office to, um, um, a more modern building, uh, in, in larger, uh, in Mount Clements, Michigan. Yeah. That, you know there. what that I do remember is three, seven. 375 automation drive or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was automation drive. You don't have yep. quite the number quite right, but it was automation drive. Oh, right, right. What was the what was the actual number, Craig? Uh, you know, I I uh, um I can't remember it off the top of my head. I put it in all those comic ads and now it's not coming back to me. <laughs> but what what did it look like in there? Like uh, you know, Chuck was mentioning, were things in in like file cabinets? How was it laid out? Where you yeah, they, believe it you're or talking not, about the, the Detroit the post office building? Yeah, 
Craig, we all want to trust me. A lot of people out there actually dream of what it looked like. So yeah, really of the interior. <laughs> yeah, it was just an old building, and uh, um, you know, basically there were um, quite a number of uh, aisles with racks for all of our stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, it it uh, wasn't a very um, attractive uh, building, actually, and it was. As we grew the business, it uh, became really tight. Um, so uh, we had, you know, we had to have somebody. We had to have people there that opened the mail. Uh, even in 1970, 71, 72, um, kids would send in their money and cash. You get a lot. We got a lot of coins. You get an order in an envelope with uh, kids who would tape. Uh, 20 pennies <laughs> to, a, to a to a three by five card you know that's, that's funny yeah and and uh oh gosh poor craig craig uh, keep playing you when you come on well i think you went off but hey guys you know what i'll give you a rundown the and the reason i'm uh i mean we have, we have music here we have am i am i there oh there you go, back. Go ahead. Go ahead. that would be so cool to see the inside of that place that would be like a step well, back in hey, history. You know what, Craig? Tell me if if I'm correct in this, and, and I'll tell you why. And because Mike and I have been, and and this is, sounds crazy, but God has blessed me to allow me as not only a kid that grew up in that era, but allowed me to go into my <laughs> childhood love and go inside places. I've been in the original SS Adams, which goes back to 19 building and. Me and Dave, we toured the whole complex. He showed me everything. I've been wow. there four times. And I've also and also I go back to nineteen eighty-nine when Chris Adams gave me a tour of the place. So I, I've been in the place many times. I went into Honor House, kinda into the back end to wait for the guy who gave me back in nineteen eighty-five, gave me the um well, he gave me a couple of the Frankensteins and stuff they had and said to me, hey, you know what, man? We threw out everything three months ago. And I'm like, what? But anyway, that's another sad story. But here is the way it would describe it. Think of a, for anybody out there that would like, if you remember the old Supermans from George Reeves on TV, how his office looked like. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You had, when you go into the building, and I'm, I'm thinking that this is probably exactly the way Craig will describe it. You go into the building, and there's obviously different sections. Now, we're, first of all, if you ever gone to a post office, and you guys go to a real post office, you see that they still have those metal cabinets and dividers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so think of that. Some of them are office dividers that divide one desk from the next. Secondly, if you look at those steel shelves they sell in Home Depot, the steel shelving, mm-hmm. fill the back of the warehouse in aisles. In each of those, there's usually card, little cards uh, identify, identifying each of the products in those cards. So you're looking. So if you want to really see, it, it, the best way to really see how anything like that runs, there's actually, um, on, I, I think you could probably find it on, on YouTube, who knows, but there was a special they did on the Charles Atlas company from the 70s, how it ran and, and it aired on a and I think it was. Hmm. And you see the people in the back receiving the envelopes, and, and, and that's basically now I've been, and like I said, it looks like it, it hasn't aged. Everything in SS Adams was from the 1800s. 
So if you're looking at any factory that you see, that's what it looks like. That's the environment. Dirt all over the floor. There's not, you look at the things in the corners, there's dust galore. There's brand new catalogs stacked on top of each other. Hey, that sounds like that sounds like my house. <laughs> you would have, where, especially Craig, and Craig knows this, you would have, especially where the catalogs were being mailed out, because the way S.S. Adams worked is probably very similar to Johnson Smith. In S.S. Adams, you had a lady in the front that would open up the mail, a few people, then they would have catalogs that were ready to mail out, and they would have stacks that go about a foot or two high with the envelopes already set to be mailed out. Wow, that would be, uh, so, or, or that would be so cool to see that. Oh, and when I was running Fun Factory, uh, Lou put me down in the basement, and he had a warehouse uh, where he, you know, business that he was in at the time. Oh, that's where he locked had, you. Down. So that's where he locked you down there, right? Yeah, he locked me in the basement. I was locked <laughs> there, and I was filling orders just like that. And I, I made shelves, and it was very barbaric. Or sometimes the way the Fun Factory was run prior to me ever being there. It was a large garage, like one of those houses that have an outdoor garage. But the garage was like for two cars. It was large and it was made into like a, a, a small office. And it, it had in the front a lady, two desks. One lady received the mail. The other one opened. The other one put everything into, you know, the. there were at that time typesetting machines that they used. In the back, you had the steel shelves with aisles and everything on those shelves. They were either, there's plastic bins they sell that you put things in. And usually if you go to an auto parts store, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they have those plastics. Those are, am I correct in saying all this, Craig? Yeah, pretty much. You know, it's not very glamorous. Uh, I will tell you that. Can you hear me? Yeah, yes. we hear you. Yeah. You know, if you look at, say, an Amazon warehouse today, uh, much bigger than ever uh, Johnson Smith uh, uh, facility ever was, but basically the same thing: uh, an office attached to a, a warehouse where you had your merchandise. That's all. Wow. You know, Craig, it, it sounds funny that you say it, uh, but I want to tell you something that might surprise you. Actually, I was one of those kids that dreamed to see how it looked like. And to me, a mail order company wouldn't be a mail order if it didn't look like that. You're right. You're like we actually, like for example, and I know this because I found it crazy when one time I took a picture of the building of the Honor House building outside, and I took a picture because I wanted it for myself because I thought, wow, this is where it was. I took pictures of the Fun Factory, and I took pictures of this company that sold. And you probably remember the Moon Monster back in the '60s. Oh, absolutely. Craig, the and the thing is that the people have actually sent me emails to buy those photos from me. Wow. You're like, kidding. I'm serious. Like people, like right now, give you an example. If you had a picture or if you know any, that has a picture of somebody, say you and your wife, and, and I, I'm not going to get into details. That's personal. But I know you you were associated with some people uh, that were whatever. In, in, in there, say you guys took pictures of yourself in Johnson Smith. Just the fact that it was inside the Johnson Smith company. You could probably do about a hundred dollars today on eBay for that. No, that would be <laughs> interesting. Be amazing. You yeah, know I know people wanted. I know people wanted to come, especially when we were in Mount Clemens, uh, and, and pushing out a lot more catalogs than we did previously while we were in Detroit. Uh, but we discouraged people from buying uh, at the door. Uh, it just wasn't something we were prepared to do. It's, mm -hmm. You know, we were a mail order company. 
Right, right. You know, I was shocked. Well, what happened here? Here's what happened. I, I walk into uh, Honor House, 1980. I think it was 1983, actually, the first time, because this, this is way before I even started doing the middle. I wanted to, 83, 84, let's, whatever, whatever the year. I walk in and I get, and there's three secretaries. There's one, two, three desks there, and I could see there's a glass door that goes to the back, and there's more windows, whatever. So I go there. And the one lady, when I say, I'm looking for Anna House, she starts telling me, oh, my gosh, we were such a big company. We lost, I'll never forget this. She goes, we lost our union. We lost all this stuff, right? So then some guy comes out. It was a, a, a gentleman, Hispanic gentleman, who had been working the warehouse. I believe that Hispanic gentleman, believe it or not, went from there to Franco-American Novelty Company. I, I can't remember because they're both ordained the same. And I'm just realizing it, it, it happened to me like when you watch Bewitch and everybody knows Bewitch had two Darrens, but you never as a kid realize it. And you're like, they look a little different, but that's going to be the thing. <laughs> yeah. I think I did one of those J.J. Roos kind of stupid things in my mind where now I look back and I go, damn, I think it was the same guy. But anyway, the thing was that this guy takes, I don't want to say the name because, you know, obviously he's, he's, I don't think he's dead. He took me and he says, go to the back of the warehouse. So I drew, I, I ran out of there because he didn't tell me why. I run and I go in the back. He opens a big loading dock door. And when they opened the loading dock door, I got to see 60% of the honor house, right? Or what it used to be. Now, obviously, it's a different company, but I got to see the interior of the building. So he comes out and he brings me 20-something envelopes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, four or five envelopes. Inside each envelope, and of course they're thrown together, the, the everything sorted, was 10 uh, seven-foot Frankensteins in mint condition, you know, brand new, and 11 skeletons. And he gave me that. And I said, what about the ghost? Do you have the ghost? He went back and goes, man, I, I really, I'm, I'm sorry, man. And he, he really looked all over and found nothing. So I left out of there like, oh, my God, I finally got Boney. Because as a kid, I didn't order Boney. <laughs> I didn't know what he looked like. Well, I had now 11. So I'm like, wow, man. And I got to tell you something. It was To me, that was a, the best trip ever, right? So when I still drive through New York, I remember that. Because I went there. After that, I went there another four times. And, but the thing was that when Edwin Wagman, the original owner of Honor House, and I, I'm saying the name because he's all over the Internet, so you'll be able to find it. Uh, he passed away 15 years ago, whatever. He goes to me, goes to his secretary. Can you please tell him to write me? So in other words, in order for me to meet up with him, this guy's more important than the president. I have to write him. I'm 18 years old, whatever. Then I got to pay attention. I went home. I wrote the letter. Guess what? Didn't get a response. Call him three weeks later. Oh, yeah, he got the letter. So I went. A second time down there, a month later, two months later, I'm like, I got to meet this guy. And then, lo and behold, the secretary goes to me, hold on a second. I think she told him, you better meet this guy. She kind of forced it on him because he was like, tell him to write me a letter. I'm like, I already did, you know. And so he brings me in. So I go into this office, and I'll never forget. He's got a desk that looks like when you have a Catholic church, you go in and you have the, the altar, which is like made of rock. And both sides of the legs were glass. So the first thing I looked at, I said, wow, this guy's a filthy rich old dude that he's really not going to pay attention to me. 
And I went up there and I sat and he was very humble. He, you know, he treated me good. And he showed me one of the original Honor House catalogs. And lo and behold, uh, which is funny, later on, he wound up giving it to me anyway. But at that moment, he looked, let me hold it and pulled it right off of me. Like, okay, that was nice. But um, he said to me, I'll help you with the mail order, all this. And so I got out of there excitedly. But he says, I just want to be compensated for my time at the time. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is this guy going to ask me for? You know, so I went back and forth. And finally, I guess relentlessly, he showed me a few tricks here and there. And I was able, and I went up to see him three more times after that, which is so funny. And we became, I guess he figured, like they say, again, another story from the Bible, uh, where Jesus says, if they keep bothering you, you know, the, the guy you give it because they keep bothering you. Yeah. I think that's what happened with me. I kept bothering him and he gave in. But the point is that then that's when I uh, started calling Craig. And boy, Craig gave me no mind whatsoever. Hey, Eddie, Eddie, I was going to say, I know we're, we're running out of time here, but I, I, not to switch subjects, but I did want to say uh, to Sherry, because she's always on these programs, and I so enjoy her input. Oh. I wanted to say happy International Women's Day to you, Sherry. Oh, thank you. I saw that. That's um, on one of my uh, fitness uh, apps. One of yeah, the you know, I so many of us, that. including myself, without women like you behind us and with us and next to us and been supporting us, we wouldn't be, same with my book out right now. I mean, without my wife, uh, oh. without several people involved, my daughter, I wouldn't be writing that book. So I just want to specifically oh. say to you, Sherry, uh, oh. uh, a very happy International Women's Day because you are such a great support to the show and to Chuck. So just wanted to add that in before we ran out of time. That well, is, You know what? You that know, is so true. Gonna, yes. I'm going to add something in that's going to make you laugh. The Johnson Smith catalog and Craig remembers had in particular one book that reminded me of uh, of uh, of you. And I had actually mentioned it, Mike. I think I had tried texting you. I don't know if I have my phone in airplane mode. Mike's book about ghosts and, and ghost hunting. And what is the name of the book again, Mike? Uh, ghost Transfer. Yeah, ghost Transfer. Right? Ghost yeah. Transfer. Uh, Craig, remember that ghost book that Johnson Smith also, always sold? It said you can talk to ghosts. Oh, wow. I don't remember. Can you hear me? Yeah, I don't remember that. Really? It was almost in every catalog had that book in there. Wow. Uh, I never forget. That's why it kind of reminded me of that. But I thought, I thought that was a tidbit that's kind of funny. But, you know, guys, we still have about two minutes left, almost three minutes, actually. I'm going to tell you guys something very funny. Um, I'm going to try. Not funny. Something I want to. I'm going to try because I know Craig Tobek has been. I mean, Craig. Craig, uh, Lou Weiss has been dying to be on. In fact, Lou Weiss, uh, known to a lot of people, has a podcast that deals with international manufacturing. And the podcast has over 1 million listeners a week. Yeah. And uh, I would like to get him in and have him and Craig together because I think there's so much they can share for the rest of the public. And I, and I know a lot of times I'll fill in the gaps when – you know, they tend to, because remember, Craig, and, and I guess you agree with this, Craig, when you were at Johnson Smith selling, you were there doing business. You weren't there about collectibles. You were seeing what was best. I was right. a little guy bothering you, collecting the little novelties and building a history. So a lot of times, you, like you said, the biggest item you ever had was the mystery top. Right. Well, um, I'll bring in that information, but I think I, I need to have that show happen. I'm going to try. I don't know if next week might be possible, the following week when both you guys are able to. And, Mike, I'd like you to be on that show, too, because it's going to be phenomenal. 
I will good. try. I will try. But I, I'm just happy I was here today. I learned a lot. It was ex- very interesting. And, very interesting. Yes. And you know, it's always you know neat to learn some new things behind the scenes that us normal guys that are on the outside of it didn't know. So it's been a great program. Yes, absolutely. So, example. Anybody out there that's, that remembers can write to Craig Tarbeck and tell them why they weren't happy with their ghost and or they haven't gotten their board. <laughs> hey, guys. <Yeah. laughs> All right. Craig, Thank guys, listen, God bless everybody. Uh, is there Craig. any last words? Take care. Thanks, uh, Craig. All right. Yeah. Yeah. You're awesome. Have a great day, everyone. Okay. Good luck, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.